good to see that uh, Roger and Andrea are here. Uh, if nobody's aware who Roger and Andrea are, I am going to ask them just to stand very gently in that corner right there. Yeah, I know, they don't want this, but it's okay. Just stand for a second. And then you guys are gonna clap because they got married two weeks ago, all right? Welcome, welcome. All right. And I'm glad they're clapping for each other as well. So that's a good sign. Tony was the one who did the weddings. Valentine, Valentine's Day? Is that? Yeah. Good luck getting a date night on that night now for your anniversary. All right, well chosen. All right, so, but I'm glad you guys are here and we're very excited for your future and for your marriage as well. Um, you'll see over there in the corner, uh, there's a new table over there, and you'll see one of these bottles there. This is a, a local boulder company, and I want to encourage you that if you're interested in making a donation online, uh, and you can do that online, Living Water, $50 or more, we'll accept up to $50,000. Just, I'm just saying, uh, $50 or more, we will give you one of these beautiful bottles that has a lovely little filter inside so you can have your tea, decaf of course, um, but it's really a beautiful bottle and the money that we're going to collect from this is going to help Young Adult Ministry at the church, so I'd like to encourage you to, to do that and to support Young Adult Ministry as uh, Pastor Jessica is coming back soon and we'd like to be able to support the initiatives that she's planning to drive through this church here and further afield as well. So I'm glad for that and want to encourage you to go look at the bottle, experiment with it. It's also the new location of the Connect card. Whoa! Everybody said, I always look to the left of the sanctuary. Now I have to turn to the right side. <gasps> Thunder. How will I cope? Change is happening. I know, it's difficult. But uh, over there is where the Connect card's taking place, and that's where you can place your Connect card in, or you can put it in the offering plate as we collect our tithes and offerings at the end of the service today. But I want to encourage you to do that. Now, make sure you've got a worship guide. Everybody needs a worship guide today. Who doesn't have a worship guide? We've got Danny Hodgson at the back there and Peter Chamberlain. Put your hands up. Jim at the front here. I'm not saying that he arrived on time today, but uh, just saying. <laughs> Let's get uh, worship guides up here. You'll need a worship guide. It'd be really helpful at the back as well. Super. Just keep your hands up. That'd be great. Michael at the back there as well. Today is uh, One Life Day, and uh, that means that we have a group of uh, visitors, our youth from 13 to 17 years old, and they have been here from this morning and will be here until nine o'clock tonight. Pray for us um, and give us strength and courage to be able to handle the audacity and energy and encourage us as we very gently move forward to be able to support them with that as best we can. But we're really excited about that. We're going to do lunch. Registration will take place straight after the Bible study classes. Then we'll do lunch and dinner. And if you haven't registered to come and you're 13, 17 years, years old and you would like to, then please see one of the pastors or anybody in the church and they'll point you to somebody who can help you be able to join us today. So we're excited for that. The last two weeks, we have been on a break, right? We've had uh, two different sermons, two different messages, hope, and then last week we talked specifically about the church becoming the dog and not the tail anymore, and how we need to make sure that our church is the dog, and that's a really important element. But we're back now into 2 Kings, and uh, we're going to continue the series of Prophets and Kings here, and we're back into 2 Kings. And, and it's very important that we did that message last week, because on Tuesday night, at the Elders Board, because the last one got cancelled due to fake snow, um, and uh, on Tuesday night when the Elders Board get together, we are going to be addressing what it means to make the church become the dog again, for the church to be a strong leader in the local community, for us to be 
to understand what our metrics are and to make sure that we are reaching those metrics, the ones that we feel make us a healthy place. And I want you to remember us in prayer because we have a lot of things to address, a lot of different things, including the good news that we're going to be bringing out here on March 19. And you're saying, how does he remember these dates? Because March 19 is my wedding anniversary, you see? Ah, score, I got that. 21 years, yeah. But anyway, side point. Um, March 19... We're going to have our, our new family pastor come and visit us. We, are looking, we were going to bring in a youth pastor, but we're actually bringing in a family life pastor instead who's going to do youth ministry, and his name is David Smith and his wife, Valerie Smith. They're coming from Battleground, uh, so they'll come here marching, um, and, uh, and they're going to be here to, to join us on March 19th. So make sure you're here on that Sabbath. Introduce yourselves to them and get to know them. Uh, we're very excited for that, and there's a lot of changes that we're planning on Tuesday night which will affect that, including that we're changing two of our main elders' councils to discipleship and to family life. And uh, that's a pretty big shift for what we're doing. So we're reorganizing ourselves as well with that. So let's get back into the series of Second Kings because you're going to need that. Make sure you have your Bibles with you, and I hope you do have your Bibles with you. If you don't, there are Bibles in the pews that you can use. And uh, those Bibles, just so you know this, are for you to take home. Dun, dun, dun. You're like, wow, they just keep on giving. I know, it's just amazing. Tim's like, what? Yes, the Bibles are there for you to take home. They're also for you to be able to write. And you can take one of those bolder Seventh-day Adventist pens out. <gasps> They're giving a pen away as well. And you can write inside the Bible. You can take the pen and the Bible home. You can share it with someone. Or you can just write in the Bible and put it back in the pew for somebody to use next week as well. So make sure you have, uh, you have those and, and see those. I forgot one important thing, actually. On your seats... Um, just some of the quotes from uh, a stack of the community that came from here that went to the One Project. You get to read their reflections on what they felt the One Project meant to them. And uh, if you're willing to interested in joining us, we're going to hold one here, a mini one here, on August 14. Um, and so if you're interested, join us for that. Otherwise, come and join us in San Diego next year. So we are in Second Kings. I'm very excited about being back in Second Kings. And just so you know why we've decided to do this, um, Originally, I was going to stop two weeks ago, and we ended with Elisha, and just Elisha you know, taking on the power, moving forward. But then I realized that as we're going to get into the book of Daniel in the fall, um, we really need to finish off the book of Kings, because you need to remember what happens by the end of Kings so you understand and appreciate the context of where Daniel comes from. So that's why for the next four weeks, uh, this week included, we're going to go through the, the book of Kings and just finish it up, wrap it up, and get some exciting things taking place there. Now, how you understand God in the Bible really affects your life, really affects who you are. And I just want you to, to take this one example that we experienced on Tuesday at our Fresh Word Bible study that we do here at Tuesday lunchtime. We were looking at the book of Genesis, and we're going through there. And uh, if you look at the story, at the point that we were at, where Abraham meets, Jesus comes with two angels to, to visit him, and Abraham is sitting down there, and he's talking to Jesus, and then Jesus says, well, those two angels, they're off to go do the business to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah. And you start hearing about how, how Abraham's like, well, but God, what if, there, what if there are 50 people who are holy? I mean, good people in that whole Sodom and Gomorrah. Surely, God, you would let them live and wouldn't destroy them. And God's like, yeah, 50, sure. And then he's like, well, what if there's 45, God? And you see him negotiating all the way down to 10. And God is constantly saying, yeah, all right, if there's 10, 
Now, here's the thing. Moses is painting a picture. He's painting a narrative, and he's trying to tell you that we believe that we have to appease God, that we have to beg God, that God's up here, and he's like this crazy monster, and he just, I want to just kill and destroy Sodom and Gomorrah, but good old Abraham, wow, what a hero, isn't he? He stopped God from doing, killing all those innocent people. That's what Moses is telling you at this point. And most of us have struggled at some point with the God of the First Testament. Maybe we've even believed that he's this kind of dangerous God of the First Testament, bloodthirsty God of all this kind of stuff. You read this, but you don't understand the story has to continue. So Moses takes you to this place, everybody's like, yeah, I'm with you on that, and then the next chapter, they go there, and you see that they can't even find 10 people. In fact, they want to rape and abuse the two angels that turn up, and they want to take Lot's daughters and rape and abuse them, and they are just devastated, and they are terrible people. In fact, you end up only with Lot and two of his daughters who leave the entire Sodom and Gomorrah. So God is trying to say, through Moses, sometimes you don't understand why these decisions are made, and I'll let you think for a moment that I don't know the future and I don't know what's going on. But when you see the picture, none of these people were interested in following God. In fact, all of these people in Sodom and Gomorrah, the entire two cities, they were there to destroy and hurt people, and God was gonna put that to an end. So these are difficult things, important things for us to remember because when you enter into these texts here, there are heavy, heavy areas that cause us complex tensions in our life all the time. So let me do a recap with you. The children of Israel are where? Wow, two weeks of memory and they remembered. You're my hero. Exile, they are in exile and they're in exile and they're looking at the history of people. Oh man, maybe we shouldn't do the two week break. I I feel like uh, one of those teachers at the beginning of school year realizing that my children have gone away for the entire summer and their brains have died. And then they come back like, my name is caveman, and that's what I feel right now, so it's okay, so they are over here, and they're looking at the story of Moses, and the judges, and they're looking at the whole history of the kings, because they're trying to understand in exile whether God abandoned them, or whether God, whether they had abandoned God, so they're looking at the whole history of this, and we studied how the kings came together, and they're all really about themselves, and as the kings do this, the kingdom splits in the end, and you have Israel, and you have Judah, and you have these kings continually do evil all the time. Occasionally, you get one king who does a good thing, and then the rest of them just decay into this terrible state. So the children in Israel in exile right now are saying, I understand a little bit more what's going on inside here. Then we got to the prophet's part, and we looked at Elijah, and Elijah goes to heaven and then he passes the mantle over to Elisha, and you're like, whoa, is Elisha just as powerful as God had left with Elijah? And so that's where we ended up, with Elisha doing great miracles, and we end up in, first, in 2 Kings chapter 3. And this is what happens here, in the very first question. So where's the first question in your worship guide? Question number one. If God supports your enemy, does that mean he is against you? If God supports your enemy, does he mean that he's against you? This is a complex question. It's a question this chapter here attempts to address and may leave you with more questions than ever before. There are three things that uh, they're gonna face. Chapter three, and you can write this in your Bible. Chapter three, this is all it is. You're gonna face the power swings in your life. 
That's what chapter three is about. You're gonna face the power swings in your life. Things change, your work changes, your life changes, your school changes, your teacher changes, your friends change. The power swings in your life affect who you are and the decisions that you make are affected by the power swings in your life. Chapter four is this, that you're gonna face always local needs. You're gonna face local needs that are local tensions and they will always exist. That's chapter four. And chapter five is that you're gonna face global politics. We're going to address some politics, we're going to address some global politics, we're going to address the tensions that we face inside there. So with this question here, Elisha says this. He's just done a great miracle, we're really happy in chapter 2, and then he disappears from the scene, and you end up reading inside here in verse 4 of chapter 3, now Mesha, king of Moab, was a sheep breeder, and he had to deliver to the king of Israel 100,000 lambs and the wool of 100,000 rams. So he's paying his taxes to Israel. I think we've got a map, actually, if we could show the map up. Um, and if you look at the map there, you'll see that uh, the purple one uh, is king of Moab, and he has to play, pay the kingdom of Israel up at the top there on the left side. He has to pay him the 100,000. We'll keep this map up for a second. Uh, he has to do this, but what it says in verse 4 here, five, verse 5, but when Ahab died, the king of Moab rebelled against the king of Israel. When power shifts take place, people play differently. And when the power swing takes place here, there are different leadership changes that take place here. So he thinks to himself, well, there's no lead in this area. There's a vacuum inside here. Forget paying those taxes. I mean, Israel, it's so far away. What are they going to do to us anyway because they don't have a king? Well, the new king comes along, and in verse 9, you'll read there that he creates an alliance between Israel and Judah and Edom, okay? Uh, those three create an alliance, and they decide that they're going to go to war against Moab. We're going to go teach those Moabites. Where do the Moabites come from? They come from Lot. Lot had an inappropriate relationship with one of his daughters, and they had a child. He was, they made him drunk, slept with him, had a child. They're living in a cave. Apparently, that's what you do when you live in a cave. And as a result of that, you create the Moabite people. And the Moabite people existed, and there's a load of problems with this, but they exist inside there, and they're saying, we're going to go fight those, those people. And this is what happens. They go south. So they decide to go travel down south, and they go through the kingdom of Edom, underneath the Dead Sea there, to come round to the kingdom of Moab. And as they're traveling through there, they realize, halfway through their journey, seven days into it, that they run out of water. And you're thinking, but there's a whole sea. Well... Not really drinking water, is it, Gordy? No, no, not really. You can kind of float in it for a long time. Salt everywhere. So they're, they're thirsty now. And as they're thirsty, they say to themselves, and this is what happens when things go wrong in your life, because they haven't actually mentioned God yet so far, you say, it's God's fault. That's what they did. One of the kings said it was God's fault. That's what they did. So they make their plans. You make your decisions in your life. You go through those plans, and then you find out it doesn't work out, and the first thing you do is like, oh God, can't you fix this for me? Then the other people say, well, maybe we should have asked God whether this was right or wrong. Maybe we should have found out if God wanted us to go to battle. So, verse 13, they go and find Elisha. So now Elisha appears on the scene, and this is the first time that they're bringing Elisha back onto the scene here. And as they go to see Elisha, Elisha says to them, well, I think you need to go ask your gods 
why don't you go talk to Ahab and Jezebel's gods, the one that Elijah vaporized on that mountain. Why don't you go talk to them? Don't come and talk to me now. Now you're stuck in no water, and you're in the middle of a battle that's not gonna work. No, 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 you go talk to Ahab's gods, Baal. And they're like, no, 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 that's not a good idea. We really want to talk to you. And here's the thing. They want to talk to Elisha because they themselves don't have a relationship with God. So they need to go through Elisha. So Elisha's like, well, all right, you really want to do this, let's work this out. And he decides in verse 15, he says here, bring me, what does he say here? But now bring me a, what? That's not right. My Bible says musician. That can't be right. Why, why does he need a musician before he talks to God? But it says here, when the musician played, the hand of the Lord came upon him. Music and singing and worship is really important to be able to place your heart in a space where you want to hear God talk to you. Music's really difficult inside church, isn't it? Because everybody wants it to be slightly different. I had a visit this week, and, and by the way, just so you know this, I get visits all the time from people who have concerns about everything. There is not a single thing in this church that people have had not, haven't had concerns about, including the panels, the brown panels at the back. People have concerns about the shading of the panels at the back. I mean, there's all sorts of stuff. People come and complain about the choir, and they complain about the microphone, and they complain about Elias' pants, and which I understand, because they're, they're kind of a weird color. Jim has the same pair. And, and so people complain about... You do, Jim. I've seen that. It's not the same? Oh, not even the least? It's not nice. Oh, he said it's really nice. I don't hear really well. And so <laughs> they complain about everything. So this person came along, and they were really concerned that we're very repetitive with our music. And they said, I just, I don't know, Pastor, I just don't like the fact that we're repeating things over and over and over again. And, and, I, and I reminded this person that I go every Christmas to, to Handel's Messiah with my wife. We go to a sing-along, which, by the way, I'm hoping one day here at Boulder we will do a Handel's Messiah, and we will actually do a sing-along Handel's Messiah and invite the community to come at Christmas time and sing. Crazy idea. But my wife and I go every year, and if you want to join us, let us know. You can join us with that. We love it. And when you're singing Handel's Messiah, believe me, there are tons of times, tons of verses, where he says, Three words, and he repeats it over and 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 over. And it's just like, yeah, I love it. Nobody's complaining with the repetition there. You read in the book of Revelation that the angels, 24 hours a day, seven days a week, if there is that kind of time zone in the world of heaven, uh, they are praying to God, celebrating over and over again, saying, holy, holy, holy is the Lamb God Almighty. These are beautiful things. The issue is not repetition, my friends. The issue may be preference about what music you like or don't like, and I understand that, because you want to come and worship here together. So those of you who turn up just when the sermon's beginning or turn up just at the benediction blessing time, you've missed out. You need to come when we're beginning worship, which is, by the way, who came really early today? Where's Tyler sitting? You guys did, well, you guys did, or you, you don't count. You don't count, you're always here. I mean, I, I arrive here around 6.30 in the morning and they're already here at the door. <laughs> I'd beat you. <laughs> where's, where's Tyler? Ah, there you are. So Tyler, his, he and his wife were saying, 
they came and said to me, what time does church begin? Because I thought it said nine o'clock. I said, it does, with refreshments. Ah, unagi. And they were like, wow, I'm here 30 minutes early. And so I said, I'm glad. Because with refreshment time, you get to be able to meet each other and connect, and that's really important. Uh, but if you do this, and Elisha understood this, you place yourself in a space where you worship. You open yourself up to the Spirit. That's why we sing. That's why we worship. Because when you sing together, you open yourself up to God and say, God, take me to this place here. So they did this, and it was beautiful. And I, and I hope one day that not only will we come here early in the morning, but we will be here at church together and we'll pray before church begins. We'll spend time in the sanctuary and we'll just sit here and we'll just reflect on who God is and prepare our hearts through this. But they did, and it's beautiful, and we, we see that the word of God comes to him. And as the word comes to Elisha, he says to them, by the way, water's gonna come, it's just gonna just appear, don't worry about this, and you're gonna go and do this incredible battle and everything will go really, really well. So, verse 21 comes along, the Moabites get up and they amass all of their army together. Uh, we've lost the picture, but uh, it's, you remember where it was. The Moabites get up, they amass all the army together, they get their boys and their kids and all ages, let's go to war. And as they go to war, they see that there's water everywhere, which was not normal, right? And the mountains, uh, the, the red mountains on there, reflecting with the sun, makes the water look like it's blood red. And so they think to themselves, oh my goodness, those three alliances, they must have attacked each other and killed each other and they don't have any power. So they're like, well, let's just stroll up there and pick up the goods. And they walk into the alliance all ready for battle and they lose miserably. Then you get down to verse 27. And verse 27 is where it gets a little bit complicated for us because we're really uncomfortable with this. But this is what it says here. Then, after they lost and the king tried again in verse 26, and you get to verse 27, then he took his oldest son, who was to reign in his place, and offered him for a burnt offering on the wall. And there came a great wrath against Israel, and they withdrew from him and returned to their own land. He sacrifices his son, to Chemosh, his God, and Israel fills the wrath, moves away, and leaves us hanging there in the text with no answer. Because it's complex, right? I mean, when you read Bible texts like this and you say, oh my goodness, that person killed his son. How many of you would say that that was a very barbaric thing to do? How many say that was an excellent thing to do? How many of you don't know how to raise your arm? All right, I was just worried. I was just worried. There was a few people like, I'm not raising my arm. That's a really difficult question. Is it a barbaric thing to kill your own son? We would say, yes, yes, okay, good. There's four of you agree, right. So, um, and it is. We would, in our Western world today, consider looking back at the past, not understanding the context, saying, that's a terrible thing to do inside there. But you don't understand the language of firstborn in the entire Bible until you start to see firstborn played out all the way through. It is the firstborn of Mesha, the, God, the, the king, against the firstborn of Yahweh, which is Israel. It is just like in Exodus when Jesus said, hey, you've got the firstborn of Egypt and you have the firstborn of Yahweh that's taking place. That's why the firstborn are slaughtered because there is a battle of who is the firstborn? Who is the one that's going to rule through this? But then today, do we kill our firstborns? Do we offer abortions and just sanitize it? I know there are people who have had abortions and, and, and I don't take this lightly. 
And if you're one of those people, hear me carefully. It's not an easy thing to go through, for sure. And you've probably got all sorts of things that you need to resolve in your own life about what that meant to you. But we, as a society, have actually pre-created space for it to take place and for it to be okay. We, as a society, have created space for you to actually not have to address it. But if you've had that happen, and you don't know what to do about it, then you need to come and talk with us. Talk with one of the elders. Talk to somebody in your Bible study class. Talk to one of the pastors and process what it really means for you. It's the same when we go to war. We have said, let's take our firstborn and send them out to the front lines, and if they die, it's okay, because it's war, because it's a greater good. But when we look at the First Testament, we sanitize it entirely, separate our lives, context out entirely, and we say, that clearly is not what's taking place. Yet, today, we're constantly killing our firstborns all the time. We do it in the name of our justice, in the name of our appearance of what we believe is actually right taking place inside there. Micah wrestled through this quite a lot, and, you read, and Micah's one of the minor prophets. Page 536 in your Bibles in the pew, but Micah chapter 6, verses 6 to 7. And I'd like you to go there because this is a really beautiful text, and I think it's important for you to understand how Micah ponders through this same scenario as well. And he ends with a different point, a point that actually God is trying to say to us as well, and even saying there to Israel right there as well. Micah chapter 6, verse 6. Everybody got it? Good. Micah chapter 6, verse 6. What shall I come before the Lord? This is him asking. Bow myself before God on high? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings? He's pondering about this, asking these questions. Shall I, come, uh, shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with the calves year old? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams, with ten thousands of rivers of oil? Shall I give my firstborn for my transgression? Do you see that? and the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul, because that was a practice they did. He said, he has told you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you but to do justice, to love kindness, to walk humbly with your God? He's not asking for all those firstborn. He's not asking for all those sacrifices. And yet this is where this king takes it before him. Now, as the Israelites move back, here's the second dilemma we face. The king says, my God, Chemosh, he's more powerful than God of Yahweh. And does the prophet who writes this text for us explain to us what's going on? No. He leaves it hanging. He leaves you thinking about it, saying, is there another God? Could there have been a God that was more powerful than Yahweh? Is that the reason why they actually left back? Is it that the Israelite army saw the sacrifice of the firstborn on the wall and said, that's barbaric and that's wrong and I can't be part of this and step back? It leaves you hanging there on purpose. Because the Bible is there for you to wrestle through things, not for you to have all the answers all the time. It's for you to say, I understand that I'm in exile, and I understand that I'm here, but it doesn't make any sense. And God says, well, there are some big picture items that you don't understand, and I'm going to take you there at some point, but for now, you have to hang on. Because God may appear like he's working with your enemy, but God understands all the pieces that are taking place in your life, and you have to hang on through there. Question number two inside your guide. Question number two. Why do we hold on to the normal instead of the extraordinary? Why do we hold on to the normal instead of the extraordinary? If you go to chapter four here, there are five miracles of the normal that become 
something that we really need to take place, and they become the extraordinary. There are five applications as well of each of those miracles that Jesus picks up on, which is the beautiful thing about it, right? Because Jesus comes along and he's like, you see all this stuff that took place with Elisha? I'm gonna connect it to these points inside us. So I'm gonna just fly through these real quick because of what we gotta do covered today. Escape from slavery is the very first one here. First story, it takes place in chapter five. And what you have are some creditors who come along and they're gonna take this woman, this widow, and Jesus talks about widows a lot, but he doesn't take this widow, put her into slavery because she can't pay her debt. We have not followed the custom in the Bible which said that every 50 years you should level things out, return to the land, settle the debt. No, we actually have increased the people who are rich and the people who are poor, and we have stretched it thinner and thinner and thinner. And we pretend that everything is fine, but we are constantly squashing people down all the time. And Jesus says in the same story here, he understands the significance of the oil. And as you see this, the, the, Elisha goes to the woman and says to her, hey, take this oil, multiply it, and you'll be able to sell this oil, and this oil will actually make enough living, you'll be able to pay your debt off entirely. So Jesus himself is sitting down one day in Simon's house, and a woman comes along, you remember this story? And she anoints his feet with oil, which you, Gordy, were actually showing the, the, the fragrance of the spignard, right, last week. It's just a strong scent inside his class that he was sharing with everybody as well in the class then. He says, he anoints his feet and with this oil, he, Jesus, is gonna release us from slavery because he's going to sacrifice and he will release us from slavery. Second story takes place here, there's the, the woman who is doing really well but she just would love to have a child and she comes to Elisha and Elisha says to her, you will have a child. The promise of the child comes forward. We were studying this on Tuesday as well where Sarah gets the same promise, right? And she receives the promise that takes place, and we were studying this on Tuesday, and the promise comes through, she laughs about it, this woman doesn't laugh about it, but a year later, she has the child. Jesus picks up on the same story, all through the Gospels, the Messiah is born out of unlikely places. No idea where it came from, suddenly the Messiah is born inside there. The third story, you see that Elisha, the boy grows up, Elisha comes along one day and hears that the boy has died, and now he's overwhelmed with this. He goes to the boy and he lays on the boy. And Psalms talks about this in 104 where it talks about the breath of God. He lays on the boy, he puts his mouth on the mouth. He prays to God. Twice he does this until the boy sneezes seven times and is resurrected and comes to life. And we have the same story came, coming up again where Jesus himself says, hey, I have power over death with Lazarus, and he takes the life forward. And then you have the fourth story where they're, they're really hungry and they just don't know what to do, so they go out into the field, which is why I never go in the wild to go hunting or to go pick up any leaves or to make anything from a garden. It is not a good idea that I do this because I would pick up the whole thing and say, I hope that this works. And I put it in the pot as they did and they cooked a poisonous pot and they were gonna die. And he adds salt to it, prays over it, boom, everything's fine with it. And then you read where Jesus talks about the salt of the earth. You see what Jesus is doing the entire time that he's down here on earth? He's picking up on the stories that they all knew through the entire exile, sitting over this side here. He picks up on these stories and says, let me tell you what they really mean today. And he says, you are the salt of the earth. Everywhere you go, you will actually be able to do this. And then, in the final one, there's food left over. They, they collect all the food up and they're like, I don't know if we're gonna have enough, there's food left over, and where else do you hear of a story, something similar to this, where Jesus feeds the 5,000? And as he does this, there's a great account of it in Mark chapter eight. We don't have time to go there today, but Mark chapter eight, pencil it in, have a look at that sometimes, because what he says in Mark chapter eight is this, you know, I fed the 5,000, we had the 12 baskets left over, 
and you still don't understand that God is a God of abundance. So all of this is to say this in chapter four. God takes the normal and he says, I can turn your everyday issues that you have in your life from normal into extraordinary. Everything changes, everything is different, everything is new. And God is saying to all those children of Israel in exile, you may suffer right now, you may not understand it, but I'm gonna pull you through this. Brings us to our third and final question this morning. Which compromises are possible, which are betrayals of the faith by which we live? This is a very difficult question, right? Because when I read the first part, which compromises are possible, people will often say, none, right? What do you mean, which are possible? There are no compromises. You're either for God or against God. Joshua says to that angel, to Jesus, says, are you with me or are you against me? I, I don't understand. It's kind of like night and day with Tom Cruise, right? You're either with me or you're without me. You remember that? With me, without me. That's all he's doing. There is no middle ground with him all this way through, but there are some compromises that are possible, which betrayals of faith by which we live. So, there's a famous story inside here. The children have the activity sheets and the coloring and the story of Naaman, and, and it's a great story. It's actually quite funny as well, and you should read 1 Kings chapter 5 at some time. There's a Syrian general, and you remember in the map all the way to the top, he's the enemy. He's the enemy that's going to destroy one day all the uh, 10 northern kingdoms inside there, Syrian general called Naaman, and he has leprosy. Leprosy would have been what the equivalent of today would have been AIDS, when AIDS first appeared on the scene. Remember, nobody could touch a person who had AIDS. Nobody could go to the same bathroom as somebody who had AIDS. Everybody was really scared of being close to somebody who had AIDS because they thought it was contagious in, in the same way that took place there. That's what leprosy was like as well. Same way, they were just fearful. It was isolation from community. So this great general is sick, and he has a servant girl. She has no name. Because the story's not about her. She, has a, she is, though, a captive, a slave from Israel. She could have looked at her master and thought to herself, hmm, good on you, die. <laughs> you took me away from my family, die. But she's kind of like a medical person, right? With this oath which says, no matter who you are, I'm going to serve you, and I will protect you. And so she says, I have a God, I know my God. And I tell you, in Israel, there's this prophet, and he can heal you. And Naaman thinks, right, let me do this. And he gets all of his gold together and his jewelry together, and he sends it off, and he talks to the king of Israel because power only knows to talk to power. Power doesn't understand. Sometimes they have to lower themselves to talk to the reality. So he thinks that Israel, the king of Israel, is the power. So he sends him all the stuff, and the king enters into this huge panic. He's like, oh my goodness. He wants me to do something impossible, which means he's saying, if I don't do this, he's going to attack me and kill me. And he enters into this panic mode. And then the king of Israel hears about Elisha, and he calls on Elisha, and Elisha sends the word to Naaman. So Naaman arrives, and here's his thing. If you had a really, really terrible disease or a really terrible pain or you were really sick, and you go see your doctor, and as you're seeing your doctor, your doctor says to you, you know what, I'm not even going to come out of my office. I'm gonna stay in the back, I'm gonna send you a little memo note, and the memo says, take two aspirin. That's what Naaman felt like. He was like, what? He said, he, he didn't even come out to see me. He doesn't even know what I have, and he doesn't know how great I am, and he just told me to take two aspirin, to go into the Jordan River and take a bath. I mean, of all the places in Syria, we have 
beautiful rivers. Why would I take a bath in that murky, ugly river Jordan? The same river Jordan that Jesus one day would be baptized in. The same river that has left a path of stories all through the First Testament. Why would I go inside there? And he walks away, but his servant says to him, come on, how hard could it be, Naaman, right? Come on, just go take a bath. I mean, you smell anyway. Try it. Let's see what happens. So Naaman goes into the water, and he does it. He does it just as the prophet says, seven times. And as he comes out of the water, he realizes that he's healed. In fact, the Hebrew says that his flesh was like baby flesh. Uh, that's the way he describes it. It was like it was pure and soft, gentle. That's how his body was healed. That's how the Hebrew describes it inside, that, inside the story here. And he declares that there is one God. And that one God for him, Naaman now joins in a whole other world of people now, like Laban and Jethro and Rahab, who actually all say that they believe in God. And Jesus knows this. He gives reference to Naaman. He says to him that God is for everybody. There's all sorts of beautiful things inside there. I'm taking it all together. But then Naaman says this, and this is the difficult verse, and we really struggle with this, and this is verse 19. So turn with me to 2 Kings chapter 5, verse 19. And I'm going to find it myself. And I found it right now. He said to him, uh, in verse 18, sorry, before this, he said, look, in this matter, as he says to Elisha, may the Lord pardon your servant. When my master goes into the house of Rimon to worship there, le- leaning on my arm, I bow myself in the house of Rimon. And when I bow myself in the house of Rimon, the Lord pardon your servant in this matter. And Elisha said to him, go away, you evil person. You cannot worship another god. In fact, that's unacceptable for you to do that. Is that what he says in your Bible? He says, no, stand up and be strong and stand for who you are because you just admitted that God is your God. No, he doesn't say that. In my Bible, he says, go in peace. Now, that's heavy. We don't like that because, you know, we like things to be black and white. We like to be able to say, here's a clean line. This is what it is to be a follower of God. This is what it looks this way. And, and yet there are tensions all the time. I don't know if you received the one project. Uh, we send out a newsletter uh, called The One Collective, and we sent it out this morning, 6 o'clock. My wife wrote an article, uh, a little a devotional thought inside there. And I'm going to read to you the introduction to this. But um, it's well worth reading. It's well worth getting. And if you don't, just sign up for it, and you can receive it uh, as we send it out each week here. Uh, she's talking about faith. She's talking about the tension of faith inside here. And, uh, and she says this, well, it seems pretty obvious. If you decide that you're a faithful disciple of Christ, if that becomes an important part of your identity, then you are more likely to be committed to behaviors that reflect this value, right? You would agree. We, if you follow Jesus Christ, you've got to behave a particular way. But we run almost immediately into a problem or several of them. What exactly are the behaviors that reflect this value, right? And what if, gasp, you think you're a good Christian, but other people think you're a heretic. Hmm, I don't know if you've ever experienced that. Consider the curious case of two female friends meeting up and not having seen each other for years. They're catching up on each other's lies, and they're both in for surprises. Here's friend number one. Let's put that up. You thought it was a photo, didn't you? Ah, I got that. Friend number one, married, middle-aged, faithfully attends church, is the mother of of teenage children. 
she sends these children to an Adventist-affiliated self-supporting boarding school. Okay, so you know it's a pretty die-hard school. As any good Adventist would, she disapproves of and avoids most popular culture, but sometimes drinks a glass or two of wine with a meal. Friend number two, married, middle-aged, faithfully attends church, and is the mother of teenage children. She sends these children to the local public school. She enjoys television shows and movies and listens to pop music on the radio, in public. She never drinks alcohol under any circumstance. No good Adventist would. These are the two friends who meet and collide, because both of them feel that they're both following God 100%. Both of them feel that they have an idea and an identity of what it is to be a follower of God. And the problem is, is that we are constantly drawing lines, pushing people away from this. And Jesus understands this tension. The children in exile were doing the same thing. And so there's one final chapter that I need you to turn with me, and it's a Luke chapter 17. So turn with me to Luke chapter 17. This is the final passage that I want us to look at today. Jesus understands this, and remember, he understands the, the tensions that are going on inside here, and this is what he says in Luke chapter 17, which is actually page 604. Luke chapter 17, page 604. On the way to Jerusalem, he was passing along between Samaria and Galilee, and he entered a village, and he met ten lepers who stood at a distance. You remember the story? And he lifted up their voices, saying, Jesus, Master, have mercy on us. And when he saw them, he said, Go and show yourselves to the priests. And as they were cleansed, and, and they went and they were cleansed. Then one of them, when he saw that he was healed, turned back, praising God with a loud voice, and he fell on his face at Jesus' feet, giving thanks. Now he was a Samaritan. He was the one who came back. Do you see the echo in Elisha's story of Naaman? Naaman is, represents the outsider, and the outsider declares that he is God. And the problem is that we go to Daniel and we read the story of Daniel and at the same time of the exile and you see the three friends stand up and you say, everybody should be just like the Daniels, right? Everybody should stand up all the time. Stick it in your face, stuff you, let me tell you exactly how it is. But this guy here, this guy here comes back praising God and he says, I live in a tense place. And the problem is this, is that he's on a different journey and Elisha knew that. Elisha says to him, it's okay, go in peace. You will work it out in time and you will understand where you stand with this. Here is our thing today. We are all outsiders, every single one of us. You may look around, you may say, that person looks like they're more of an outsider than me, but we are all outsiders. And if you're all outsiders, you have to recognize that all of us need God, right? So, take out your worship guide. You have your Connect card, you can separate it. And as you do that, separate that card, I want you to think about yourself being an outsider. And as an outsider, you know what God is telling you you need to address. Whether it's that you want to learn how to study the Bible more, whether it's that you want to actually decide for the first time to get baptized, whether it's that you're just saying to yourself, God, I know that in my brokenness, this is what's missing in my life and you need to come and fill it. We struggle with church all the time, my friends, and we're supposed to struggle. If you come here and you think that you've just sang some songs and you heard somebody preach the word of God to you and that's enough, you have not even began the journey. You're supposed to stay. I know some of you have already made plans and as soon as we're done in like five minutes, you're gonna be like, 
out, gone. That's okay. But I'm telling you this, there is nothing as powerful as actually sitting in community. And you may find sometimes, ah, the conversation wasn't good, then make it good. Don't behave like a teenager and complain all the time, it's not good enough for me. Be engaged. But some of you, you don't stay for Bible study classes. You know why? Because you want to run away from God. Because this is comfortable. You can stay here, you can listen, you can say, I'm really with you, kind of enjoying it. You can do the whole Greek thing and just took it in, take it in your mind and walk away. But God's saying, I need more from you. I need you to be part of a community. This thing that we do every single Sabbath here, this is not in the Bible. You understand that, right? Preaching is not in the Bible. How many sermons do you have in the Bible? Probably count them in one hand. The stories are the life that takes place. That's in the Bible. God himself, when he was down here on earth, he went around teaching people all the time, preached only a couple of sermons that we actually have records of because we like sermons and we like to be able to just listen and not have to engage. And everybody knows that the skill of homiletics that they call us in our classes are actually just a skill of influence. It's about trying to say the right things. So I'm trying very hard today to say the right things to you. I'm thinking very carefully about this. I don't want you to be offended. And yet deep down, I want you to be offended. I want you to be offended because God is calling you. Not me. God is calling you. And I look around this room here, and I know some of you are struggling with God. You're struggling with the idea of following Him. And I understand that. You, you, you read your Bible every day, and you just don't feel that it comes to life. And I understand that. You do your devotionals all the time. You turn up. Sometimes you even study your Sabbaths broadly, and you still don't feel it. And God is saying, there's got to be more than that. And that happens in our Bible study classes. And that happens in your homes and the life groups that you connect with. We have got to start to become a community, a community that actually engages in conversation. In the First Testament, when they did church, we sat opposite each other, like Jim and I would right now. And we would talk, and somebody would stand up and read from a scroll and sit down, and we would dialogue. There was no spire, there was no preacher, there was no great authority who spread the word to every single person. That was in the Second Testament with a few people from the Greek influences that we had, where we felt we need to become sophists, philosophers, where I will expel everything to you and explain everything to you. But the conversation, the heart, is what church is about. There is no great church, there is us. And God is the church, and we belong to him. Will you bow your heads with me while we have our blessing? May Jesus bless you with gentleness and a heart that is tender. May Jesus bless you with strength against all principalities. May Jesus bless you with compassion and care. May Jesus bless you with courage, daring to be who you are. May Jesus bless you with openness, understanding, and respect. May Jesus bless you with power to make Jesus all. Amen.